In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If we were to give today a title, we might call it the Sunday of the Two Masters. And I think you can see this especially in our epistle text. St. Paul describes the different kind of reward for those under the mastery of sin versus the mastery of God in Christ. St. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Seems clear enough, right? The reward that you get for sinning is death. But who pays it? Or who demands the payment? Is death the reward that God gives you because you've dared to transgress his holy will? Is God spiteful and vindictive and that one little infraction against him will earn his wrath? We heard last week that Jesus has died for all your sin. He's endured all the wrath of God on your behalf. He's come to fulfill the whole law. That means that God doesn't have wrath left for you. So why does Paul talk about the wages of sin? Well, he is describing life under different masters. Sin is a master or an owner who pays out wages. He gives rewards for working for him. And the salary that sin pays is death. Sin is not just a master, but a tyrant, an abuser. He demands and demands and demands so that he can satisfy himself at your expense. What kind of person would want to work for that kind of master? Who wants to work for a master who gives out the reward of death? Why do many people, probably even most people, work for this guy? And not only that, why do so many who work for him seem to do so happily, even eagerly? Well, it's because sin is so deceptive. Yes, he demands and demands and demands, but his, his demands seem entirely Pleasant. Obeying his word feels like freedom and liberty, like it was my choice. Working for this master doesn't feel like work at all. No one had to teach any of us how to work for sin. It's not like I go to the bed at the end of the day and I'm full of regret because, you know, I really forgot to commit my sins today. It's because working for sin never really feels like work. It's not like I have my sin training on my schedule and then I have to go home and practice so that I can get better at sinning. Not only does obeying sin feel like freedom, he always seems to be offering me more. There's a little more freedom for you. Just come and take it. Ooh, freedom? I like the sound of that. Sign me up. Now, psychology also tells us that the most addictive behaviors have variable rewards. 
That is, you don't always get the same result for your action. Sometimes things are better than others. And I think we we see this happen with sin also. Sin promises rewards, but most of the time I don't really get the thing that he promised. Or if I do, its pleasure is so short-lived that I think maybe I just didn't do it well enough. Sin is great at making promises, at over-promising and under-delivering. But then, just often enough to keep you hooked, the pleasure of sin sort of knocks your socks off. And it feels great. So sin keeps you captive to his demands. Because you know that if you keep at it long enough and hard enough, that one of these days, he's going to pay you back big time. And then there's also the times that his reward isn't really pleasant at all. Sometimes sin's reward is pain. Sometimes sin's reward hurts. Well, that's no trouble for sin either. He'll just teach you that the pain that you experience is actually good. That it's making you better and stronger. Or, or that that pain that you experience is really someone else's fault. And eventually, eventually the pleasure will come. That proverb really is about each one of us. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, many sins are committed in the heat of the moment. Some require forethought and planning. But have you ever sort of sat down and considered that plotting and, and scheming that you do to, to perform a certain sin, have you ever considered that plotting and scheming to be a burden? Have you ever gone to work on a project and thought, oh, wait, before I, before I do this, I have to go and plan some sin first? Whether your sin is committed in the moment or with forethought and planning, it generally comes easily. And often it even feels like a good work. Sin doesn't feel oppressive. It seems pleasant and liberating and even joyful. And yet, all the while, sin is stealing away your life. With each bit of promised pleasure or happiness comes also another little dose of death. And so every time that sin wants to steal from you, it's figured out how to make that transaction feel good. Subverting or sneaking around rules feels like an occasion for joy. Using God's gifts of marriage outside of that institution can feel like a new lease on life. Disregarding the speed limit feels exhilarating. Drunkenness removes inhibitions and makes you feel like your true self. Being able to spread that bit of gossip Well, that just feels like relief. Getting away with your sin feels, oh, so satisfying. And so with all these sins comes the feeling that you're actually doing something good. 
The one who sins thinks the transaction has been a net positive, that by sinning he gains something. See how good this feels? But that slave master's sin has masterfully hidden the rot that his service actually brings. Just below the thin veneer of promised pleasure and happiness lies death. Sin hides its true nature just as the sinner we heard about last week, that sinner who hides his sin under cover of outward righteousness. Now, maybe you find yourself caught up in service to sin. You've been lured and enticed by his constant promise of making you feel better. Maybe you find yourself deeply incorporated into his propaganda. Maybe your life under him feels quite good and normal. But just because something is normal doesn't mean it's good for you. Look at the world around you. There's sin. Slavery under sin in the world is normal. It's the usual order of things in this life. But normal is not good. Now, maybe that slavery under sin used to be your life. Maybe you look back on that time and you remember how fun and free your life used to be when you worked for him how much easier life was. Maybe you think about all the fun things you used to find joy in, and you wonder how to get that joy back. Maybe sin was right after all. Rules, everybody has rules, and those rules feel so oppressive. Besides, in this new life, the sermons are boring, and everyone at church is just a hypocrite, Life under that old master was better than whatever I have now. Then I got to feel how I wanted to feel. I can see what sin promises. I hear his siren song, and it looks a whole lot better than whatever I have right now. And so when this happens or when you're under the intoxication of the slave master known as sin, then you must also consider his true wages. Not what he says he will give you, but what he actually hands over. Sin doesn't give you good things. He pays out D-E-A-T-H, death. And not just a temporal death, Not just death at the end of this life, eternal death, everlasting torment, eternal separation from God. But you, dear baptized saints, you have a different master, the true and living God. And this is the context for today's epistle as well, that that Paul is speaking specifically to the baptized, And so you belong to Christ. And under him, you you serve him with true and laudable service. And yet, even though you live and work under him in his kingdom, he doesn't pay wages. Wages are only paid by those who need you. 
who need your time and devotion and energy. And I think this, by the way, also shows something of how sin works. Sin needs you in order to have any power. Without you, sin is powerless. So it must offer and entice and beg and complain until you go and do what it wants. And then it has power over you. And sin gets this by paying you wages because it needs you. But God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need your tithes. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He doesn't need your love or your devotion. God needs nothing and lacks nothing. He's not sitting in heaven sort of unfulfilled until you come along and serve him in just the right way. He's not unable to grow his church until the offering plate has enough money in it. He isn't unable to bless you with the food and shelter that you need until you give him proper thanks first. And then, as if to add insult to our injury, God says in Psalm 50, if if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. God has no need of anything. Everything that he possesses is infinite, without end or limit. His resources can never be exhausted. So if we come back and think again of this transaction language, that you, a sinner, are coming to give something to God, but this God has and needs nothing, and he gives you something in return. Well, this means that whatever God provides in exchange will be far better and far greater than anything you could hope to give him. Even with a billion lifetimes, you could never begin to repay him for a single gift, a single breath. Which means that whatever God gives is, by definition, a gift. You see, God does not pay wages. He gives gifts. And he does so completely out of his own goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness or good work in you. Paul points us to one of those gifts today. He says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the gift is not like the wages. The wages, the required payment due to you under sin, is death. But under God, he gives the free gift of eternal life. That means that with God, your life never ends. It means that every morning, his mercies are new. Every morning, God gives you new gifts. That means today, the Lord gives you new mercies. Now, in this life, I think it's easy for all of us to become bored. We can become bored with our life being the way that it is or with all manner of things. And so we think that with God, that our life with him 
might eventually become boring too. And this also, I think, is our view of heaven. How many of us look at the descriptions of the book of Revelation and see the incessant, continuous worship going on there and we think, well, that's going to get boring. Just talking about and praising God all the time. Church is already long enough. But God is infinite. So his gifts also are infinite. Which means that it will take him an eternity to even begin to give us everything that he has for us. That is your life in Christ Jesus. That is your future. So when sin comes and knocks at your door and promises you all manner of pleasure and fun, what it really pays is death. But it's not simply paying death, but also that it takes away from you the infinite gifts that Christ Jesus has to give you, an infinity of mercies. And so let's take a look also at our gospel today to see how Jesus gives. 4,000 people have followed Jesus out into the wilderness. For three days, they've been hanging on his words. They have forgotten to bring food. Day by day, hour by hour, Jesus sustains this multitude with nothing but the gracious words flowing from his lips. The crowd is kept alive by hearing Jesus preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, as Jesus preaches the righteousness of his kingdom. They are hungry for God's word, because they are hungry for God. So brought into Jesus' words are they that they eat and they drink them. The words are as honey. They taste like the promised land. Those words and those words alone, as they sit and listen to Jesus, those words keep death at bay. Because these are life-giving, life-sustaining, and death-destroying words. They are the words that take away sin. For where there is forgiveness of sin, there is also life and salvation. That means with Jesus there with them, there is no more death. And the people can't get enough of his words. Then the three days of teaching are over. Jesus wants to send them home. They hadn't brought provisions for the journey. And if they go home now, St. Mark says, they will fall down from hunger. Jesus could have blamed them. After all, who goes on a three-day journey and forgets to pack even a granola bar? But even before the people realize that death intends to come for them, Jesus will act. Before they think to pray for help, Jesus will help. Now, Jesus first throws the problem at the disciples, but they don't really know what to do. I'm not even sure that they want to solve it, because they dismissively call the crowd these people. And so everything in our text gives us a clue 
that gives us a clue as to who made up this crowd tells us that they were Gentiles, pagans, and the Lord's disciples don't want to help. But even apart from his disciples' compassion, Jesus will have compassion on the crowd, and that means that he will help them. Ironically, even, he will use the food that his disciples have. Now, it's also not really the point of my sermon today, but I can't help but notice a stewardship lesson when the disciples hand over to Jesus what little they have. So we see that giving something to Jesus is better than nothing. And that Jesus will take it and bless it and use it in the way that he knows is best. So Jesus takes those seven loaves, gives thanks, breaks them, and hands them over to his disciples to set before the crowd. And so also the fish. Bit by bit, all the food is given out. St. Mark wants us to know for certain that all the people were filled. Not just a snack to curb their hunger. They are completely and utterly satisfied. Finally, there are the leftovers, seven baskets. And these aren't little baskets. They're not even picnic basket size. These are seven giant baskets designed to hold over 50 loaves of bread each. So they've gone from seven loaves to seven baskets of 50 loaves each of leftovers. Now, if the people wanted anything, maybe it was a snack for their way home. But Jesus feeds and feeds and feeds them until they want no more, and then there's plenty left over. And even if they had understood the depth of their problem, where or how could those people have possibly begun to have solved it? Jesus feeds them as though they are going to die. And so the nature of his gift shows them the depth of their need. And so it is for you. Jesus saw your need. He saw your enslavement under sin's mastery, and he had compassion on you. And before you knew your need, he took the burden and the wage of sin on your behalf upon himself. He takes the fullness of himself and becomes man bearing the sin of the whole world, shedding his blood of infinite worth on the cross. The nature of his gift shows the depth of your need. Living under sin's mastery feels pleasant, but it's a slavery that leads to death. Even if you knew and understood that fully, you could never escape from its power. So Jesus... Before you knew to ask, without your permission, he stole away your sins from you and handed over his eternal life to be yours. He does not pay you wages as you have earned. It is his nature to give gifts. So it is that Jesus eternally provides for you spiritually, and not only spiritually, but also bodily, for your physical needs, as he did for those 4,000 in the wilderness. Staying with Jesus for three days brought them to the end of their own provision. Jesus fed them, 
because they were with him and they were hungry. And so it was his compassion for their need of food that drove him to give. Jesus takes bread and fish and turns them into more bread and more fish. He could, if he wanted to, make bread fall out of the sky. He's done it before. Now we find ourselves amazed at the miracle in our text. But is not what Jesus does day by day more miraculous? I doubt many of you have seen bread fall out of the sky or seen bread multiply into more bread. But how often have you driven by a field of wheat where Jesus sticks a tiny seed into the ground and dirt turns it into food? He does this everywhere. Not fish that turn into more fish, but through water and eggs and food in the water. He turns corn and grass into beef and pork, sludge from the ground into fuel and clothing and toys, metal rocks into cars and buildings and batteries, and so much more. Jesus provides for all you need, both soul and body. And so now he even takes these physical elements. He makes blood and wood and water and human flesh into instruments of his salvation. He attaches his name to water and makes it a life-giving spring. He speaks his words over bread and wine and makes them his body and blood. This body and blood is given to strengthen and preserve you in body and soul now and forever. You, dear saints, have nothing to fear because Jesus is with you. He is here with his compassion to feed his hungry people. We pray. O living bread from heaven, how well you feed your guest. The gifts that you have given have filled my heart with rest. O wondrous food of blessing, O cup that heals our woes. My heart, this gift possessing, with praises overflows. My Lord, you here have led me to this most holy place, and with yourself have fed me the treasures of your grace. For you have freely given what earth could never buy, the bread of life from heaven, that now I shall not die. You gave me all I wanted. This food can death destroy. And you have freely granted the cup of endless joy. My Lord, I do not merit the favor you have shown, and all my soul and spirit bow down before your throne. Amen. Peace of God, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.